Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Have you ever created anything professionally or just for kicks for, for public consumption? I, and I had a hard time kind of explaining this. So something, like think about it, like something for outreach or public outreach or something like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, I have. I, um, I've done quite a few art fairs and I was in charge of like the educational programming at the art fairs. Oh. So, yeah, so I would work with artists and design all sorts of stuff like from activities for kids up to just like public engagement um, activities like we do yoga in the art galleries and we oh, did some, cool. yeah, and we did some like educational stuff for artists like about their craft and businesses and stuff. So that was really, f- I love doing stuff like that actually. Yeah. So what oh, about you? I assume neat. you've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, these days I'm, I'm, I mean, podcast aside, obviously I'm more behind the scenes helping the folks that do the thing. But yeah. uh, before HEU, I was a fellow with the National Academies and I worked in their museum that they had in the time in DC. Mm. And I actually created this game that I called, I think it was EcoBlocks. This was a while ago. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to demonstrate environmental resilience. So basically, if something happens in an environment, how long does it take to bounce back mm-hmm. for different things like fire or hurricanes or different stuff? And it was basically, um, it was kind of roughly based on Jenga. And oh. so there was, I remember there was uh, a die and you'd like roll the die and each block had a different number associated with it. And each block was also associated with a different hazard. So if it was like a hurricane, you could have it was harder to move a block than say fire or something like that. I don't know. Oh. But I, I I'd love to go back. Actually, this is remind me, I'm gonna go back and try to find it. But I yeah. have to say it was honestly one of the more creative things I've done professionally. And it that's saying something considering we are here right now. Right. Uh it, it was it was an absolute blast. That's really, really cool. But I have to be honest that I Heard you say Jenga, but it translated into my brain as Jumanji. <laughs> That's the next one, Vicky. I'm going to yeah. do one based on Jumanji. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right, so it's day five of the final day of our special series from our annual meeting. And the theme of today is open science. Ooh, open science. Tell tell me more. What is open science? That is, that's a great question. It's, (laughs) It's <laughs> it's a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, but basically, in the way I'm going to frame it, it's the idea that information, data, et cetera, should be free, accessible, and available to all. Yeah. That sounds pretty great. Yeah. You know, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And our interview today comes from someone who's using and making available open data to create some really amazing stuff. Awesome. Let's hear it. Fade Jiraiya, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Laura. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the game. What's the objective? Because that's always the first question you have to ask with a game. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the objective with NemoNet is nothing short of mapping the entire ocean floor. Oh, you know, that seems reasonable. Drop in the bucket. Yeah. How <laughs> long is that easy. how long is that gonna take? Uh, if we just used about a thousand PhD scientists, it would take a three million years by our estimates. Okay. Uh, so we're trying to accelerate that a little bit with citizen scientists and lots and lots of supercomputing power. Nice. So how do you play? 
So you play by starting off on a research vessel, digital research vessel that looks nicer than any actual research vessel <laughs> I've been on in the open seas. I, in, at NASA invented an instrument called fluid cam and fluid lensing, and that instrument's the first that has given us a view, a diver scale view of the underwater environment in 3D at like the centimeter scale. So we were mapping all these areas with aircraft, with drones, eventually we're trying to get to satellite layers. And you know, as of now, we've mapped about 6% of the seafloor. In the game, your job is to help us interpret all of that data. So we create a map of a coral reef, and it's really complex, even for experts to look at. You know, if you go to the Amazon rainforest and you look at one square meter, there's maybe 10 species that are there. In a coral reef, it's easily 100 times that Whoa. in that same area. So for a supercomputer to and an artificial intelligence to classify that, it's getting better and better at tasks, but there are certain ones that are just still very difficult. Um, if you Google blueberry muffin and chihuahua, or a sheepdog and a mop, you'll find all these examples where AI is failing. It's not <laughs> giving a really good result. And that's because it's not really at the level of even a two to three year old. So what we do in the game is have users give us all of that contextual knowledge, basically train our AI using their brains. There are 8 billion supercomputers walking around this planet and each one of them can make a contribution. And that's really what the game's about, is to get them in the game, looking at coral, slowly but surely learning the different types of coral and then helping train our supercomputer how to classify it autonomously. Okay, so you're looking at the coral. Are you also looking at the species that are there? And not just the coral species, but like fish and all that too? So right now we're starting primarily with just shallow marine habitats. So in addition to coral, we're looking at seagrass, meadows, even bare sand and substratum. There's lots of different categories. As NemoNet is expanding, we're trying to, you know, people are getting more ambitious. They would mm -hmm. like us to, with the newest version of our instrument, we can actually detect fish and large, you know, charismatic megafauna, so sharkies, sea turtles, things like that. Do we consider sharks charismatic? I think they're very charismatic <laughs> and sweet. They have, cool. of, they have a lot of personality. Yeah. Um, I've spent a lot of time with sharks. I was terrified of sharks growing up. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that we hope the game accomplishes is that for a lot of folks that don't have access to the water or physically not able to get to the water, it gives them that, that perspective, right? When you go to a national park and a rainforest, you're, you're immersed in that environment. You really connect with it. And with water, I think one of the biggest challenges to conservation is just getting people there, getting them to see what it's like. You know, there's lots of gear, diving is not for everybody, right. sharks, things like that. <laughs> you know, it, it can be putting off, um, and the ocean is a dangerous place, just like, you know, any forest is. But if you can get them to empathize, to see a coral reef, to start learning kind of its ins and outs and the, the creatures that live there, you create a kind of a gra grassroots conservation effort. That's what we had on land. And that's why I think land resources are almost better protected than what we have in the ocean. You know, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that we have actually mapped more of the moon and more of Mars than we have of our own planet because of the oceans and because they have, you know, prior to fairly recently, been considered fairly impenetrable for mapping yeah. purposes. Impenetrable and, you know, this endless resource, which now we're beginning to understand is quite finite. Just to give, you know, listeners perspective, we've lost entire jet planes in the ocean that have not been recovered for 10 plus years. On Mars, you know, we lost a rover the size of a golf cart. And within one week, we had a satellite image of the crash site. We had a satellite image of the parachute. That's the, that's the level of technical mismatch there is between what we can do in the outermost planets and our own home world. So mapping the ocean, this is a big challenge. <laughs> Doing it 
I mean, what's this, what's the scale of the game? Because it seems that doing it, you know, centimeter by centimeter is going to take. <laughs> it's going to take a while. It will. <laughs> so, uh, and there's there's different ways of mapping the ocean, right? There are very good acoustic maps already of the ocean. This is what ships use to navigate, so they make Sonar sure they don't and, hit a seamount, yeah. right? Sonar, and you can find vessels like you know the Titanic was found first through a sonar survey by one of my colleagues, Bob Ballard, but. Those technologies, they give you a very coarse view, right? It's like looking at trees and just looking at their shape, at very chunky shapes. <laughs> if you haven't put your glasses on in the morning when you get out, for, as, as someone who's you know, nearsighted, <laughs> I get out of bed and I'm like, that's the door over there. I right. can tell you what the color is. I can't tell you the outline or anything like general that. General shapes, really yeah. general shapes. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, our knowledge of those ecosystems is, is equally impaired. You know, we've, with acoustic systems, have mapped quite a bit of the ocean floor. We still lose entire jet planes, so it's not like... We have even really fully mapped it with sonar. But the way that we on land have done it for more than 60 years at this point is multispectral remote sensing. So this is using light, it's particularly the visible wavelengths of light, to study the different properties of an object. And with multispectral remote sensing, you know, we can look at one of these things and I can tell you, for example, this is synthetic. <laughs> and not, in fact, real because its multispectral reflectance is different. Whereas if you look at that with a sonar, it actually looks exactly like a real plant, right? There's no acoustic difference. So that's why we are spending so much time looking at mapping the seafloor the same way we do land. If people are asking, you know, what what is the importance of mapping the entire seafloor? What is the, you know, aside from these species, why is it important for us to have done the kind of mapping work with Earth that we have done on Mars and the Moon? Like, what's the value in that? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing short of our survival. One of the predictions I made, and we got a lot of flack for it at the time, was when we released NemoNet and people said, well, this is in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Why should we care about preserving coral reefs in the middle of this? And I said, listen, I guarantee you the next drug to treat COVID is likely going to come out of one of these reef systems. And sure enough, six months later, a drug 30 times more effective than remdesivir came out of a sea squirt in one of the reefs that we mapped. And that's an environment that that species may have gone extinct in the next couple of years if we had not provided habitat maps to say, look, there is biodiversity here. And with that comes with corals in particular, they have the sort of the 21st century medicine cabinet. They have all of these advanced compounds to fight disease, to fight viral compounds. Parasites. Parasites, because they're sessile, right? They don't really move that fast. They actually do move on short time scales, but it's all chemical and biological warfare. And so if you're looking for drugs just for the first thing, this is where it's at. You know, this is where you're going to find most of the medicines to treat ailments that affect humans. It's not just COVID that was treated with reef systems. You know, the leading blood pressure medications came out of corals, cancer compounds. The list goes on. And that's just corals. Corals support, on top of that, all of these other organisms in the ocean, which also provide these compounds. Sharks have amazing abilities to fight cancer, among other, other diseases. And so that's just, that's one component of why should you care? Well, <laughs> you know, if there's another pandemic, which I'm nearly certain there will be, we're going to rely on this medicine cabinet to treat us ourselves. And if we, on our watch, let that biodiversity putter out that's evolved for billions of years, we lose with it the potential to treat ailments that will affect our species. Of all the species on the planet, humans are some of the least diverse, despite however much differences we try to create amongst ourselves. We're genetically like almost identical. It's scary. And so as a result, when a pathogen does emerge, it tends to wipe out large swaths of population very quickly. And is this information that is coming out of the game available to all the scientists and other people who might be interested in getting access to it? 
we've got 85 year old you know playing it who's super into it and she can outperform me regularly <laughs> so i've sort of given up i'm like the lower tier level as you rank up in the <laughs> video game there's the whale shark is the top level so there's a couple of our whale sharks and then you start off as a plankton very small <laughs> i love it how if somebody wanted to get involved with this how would they go about doing it how would they become a a plankton first and then hopefully a whale shark yeah i mean just go to nemonet.info or just type in nasa nemonet and download it it's available for windows android ios devices we tried to make it as universal as possible we're working with some bigger agencies to make it like a more professional tool for them to use to classify but all the data will remain open source um, and then you you know start up the game you get a profile i think mine's like Sir Captain Narwhal or something. <laughs> you can get some auto-generated ones, and then there's you can compete with different friends and family members. So that's some of our best outcomes are when people get competitive. How do you think your plot game stacks up to what Ved is creating? Okay, so I'm proud of what I've done, uh, but but it doesn't. And that's fine. I, I'm so happy that there are folks out there like that doing the work that they're doing. And so with that, uh, that's the last of our episodes in a special series. And that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Laura Krantz for conducting the interview and to you, Shane, for producing this episode and all our episodes this week. Audio engineering was by Colin Warren with artwork by Olivia Ambrosio. If you'd like to see a video for at least part of this interview, you can head over to YouTube and search for AGU-TV. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review the podcast. And you can find new episodes in your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>